0: Our show is presented by TechGC, our friends at TechGC. Producer to the stars, Chris Sands, uh, (laughs) is the head of marketing at TechGC. And uh, (laughs) if you want more info on TechGC, there's info in the notes below. Um, But, you know, I love those guys.
1: Yeah, TechGC, rock on, man.
0: All right, here we are. We're here. Good to see you, man. How are you?
1: I'm good man living living the dream
0: <laughs> uh, the we get a, a fun episode with me, Kirk Na- <laughs> with audio delays and and uh, a guest Kirk Nara who is like HIPAA lawyer to the stars is that how you how you describe him
1: <laughs> he is definitely a celebrity HIPAA lawyer man
0: he is kind of a celebrity, which I have a funny story. Like I worked with uh, he, he works at Wilmer Hale and uh, I worked with Wilmer Hale and uh, I had been discussing something with one of the other partners on the corporate side. And I was like, ah, you know, like not not that many privacy pros at Wilmer Hale. And he was like, well, have you talked to Kirk? And I said, no, I haven't. And so we made a point to get together. And like I was right. <laughs> Kirk's, a, Kirk's a pro. Uh for sure.
1: He's definitely one of the wise sages of our uh profession here. And it's good to talk every once in a while to folks that were here and doing this before it had the cachet that it has now. You know, like those are really the founding the founding the founders, I guess, of of our whole thing. And and Kirk is definitely on that Mount Rushmore. So I'm I'm excited uh that we have him on here. The chat was great. We talked some tennis and like uh you know Uh, technical problems notwithstanding i thought it was one of our better conversations yeah all right well here it is
2: yeah so so, um the, the, the nara conjecture is actually trevor hughes's phrasing but my one of the things that i've been saying as this as this uh national debate has been moving along is that you know, we started with CCPA in California and we started rolling out to other, um, other states. And my view on the real pressure point for a national law was that at some point there were going to be enough state laws that industry would say we can't do the state laws. And so I was saying, my, my prediction was sort of, it was going to take three to six state laws to push industry to go to Congress and say we need a national law, um, because we can't deal with six, you know, three to six state laws. I, I, I did, I did hedge my bet a little bit by say three to six meaningful states, you know, significant states. So I don't know that, that everyone that's passed so far necessarily fits that, but um, it will be interesting. I. I, I was joking with Trevor this morning. I mean, it will be interesting if if this bill does pass now, when we are at five states. I will by be by accident have been proven right. I'm not expecting that, but um, sort of back end into that. And and the other development, Andy, that that was interesting to watch is that these new state laws. Um, I'm not sure that each new one has been different or challenging enough that it has really put meaningful additional pressure on companies. I do think there's been some reaction from corporate America to basically say, yeah, we can, if, if they're all going to be like this, we can manage that. <laughs> now, we haven't had, you know, Massachusetts or New York or Pennsylvania or some of the states that, that could enact a much more aggressive law uh, get in the in the game yet.
1: So you think if the Republicans take House and Senate, that, that there's a chance to still goes forward? I, I don't, I think it becomes No, grim. we're
2: thinking, well, we're, we're thinking California is perfectly aggressive, but that's a you know, that's a single rule. So... What we what I think you I, I think what the real pressure point will be is if some other state that is substantial enough for companies to to meaningfully care about it again I'll throw out Massachusetts just as a, a you know as a possible example if they came in with something that was substantial and was different from California in some important way or ways and then if it was also Michigan and it was also New York and it, you know I I think that at some point corporate America is going to say we can't do this, and I mean maybe that's a little bit of a personal bias. I mean I, I I've said I think Andy you've heard me say this before. I mean at some level you know give me one law I don't even care what it says. <laughs> I mean I, I think the idea of just having a a standard that everyone is aiming for makes a lot of sense. I mean it's um, I mean my my career benefits from the fact that there's so many laws and it's so complicated and it's so confusing and people can't figure out what to do, but that's not actually a good thing for anybody. It's not good for consumers. I don't think it's good for, for companies. So th- that, that w- was, that was how I thought it might play out. I think that, I think this, the, 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 if this bill goes through now, I think it's sort of an accident of the five States. I don't think they're actually c- connected yet, but um We'll see. I'm also not holding my breath on it passing this year.
0: It's yeah, it's not going to go through. Right. It's it's not yeah. going to pass. But but do you think that some something that looks like it will eventually yeah. like, is this the format?
2: I Well, I mean, put it this way, I am I am not as definite on it, not passing as it sounds like you might be. Um, I, I, I think there's a, you know, a 20 percent chance it passes this year. I think that number goes up a decent amount next year. My my sweet spot is actually next year, March till September or October, because we'll have a new yeah you know, we're gonna have a new Congress. Whatever that's gonna mean, I'm not sure that's gonna matter that much for this particular bill. I say March because it's not gonna be the first thing they're gonna deal with in January or February. I say March to September, March to October, because the presidential campaign won't have kicked off yet. There's enough bipartisan agreement on some of the big provisions. I could see it actually happening at that point in time. Um, I'm not sure the, how much likelihood there is after that point in time, just because I think it's not a, not a dispute about privacy issues, it's just congressional dysfunction at that point.
0: Hmm. Pedro, do you have an opinion?
2: I mean, most. Most of the issues at this point, there is a, a meaningful level of agreement on, and I think that what we're seeing, and and again, frankly, there's you know the hearings going on in real time right now. I don't know, I'm not sure all the details of what's going on. The the issues that there's a lot of disagreement on that they seem to have a path forward on are preemption and the private cause of action. You can you can work those things out. I mean, again, the, some of the ways to work them out are um, likely to make future. Compliance issues harder versus easier or more complicated, not even harder, but more, just more challenging in in in, uh, in its entirety. Um, but yeah, I, I could see a bill still going still going through. As I said, a lot of the core issues are not a single party issue. the The other thing that I think is going to be interesting to watch is how detailed the bill gets. I mean, if I was in charge, I'd write a I'd write a streamlined bill and probably delegate a lot of the rulemaking to the FTC. There's a lot of FTC rulemaking in the bill. Now I would probably do more of that rather than getting too far into the weeds. Cause I don't, you know, I, Congress doesn't have a great history on this stuff of getting into the weeds on these issues, but um, yeah, the would FTC it make it
0: more politic. Would it make it more politically unlikely if there were more FTC rulemaking in the bill?
2: I, I don't know. I mean, if, I I mean, the, the, the FTC, you know, whatever you think of how aggressive they are, how not aggressive. I mean, they know what they're doing on this stuff. I mean, they're smart. They have talented people. I don't, you know, I, I I think that the current folks in there today would write a different set of rules than the people that were there in the past and probably the people who will be in the future. But I don't think fundamentally different rules. And again, I mean, I, I get worried watching Congress make some of these changes on a you know the way legislation goes through the sausage making machine. I just worry that we're going to have you know ridiculous things that aren't. It's not necessarily too strong or too weak, just stuff that doesn't make any sense. Um, I think we're less likely to end up with stuff that doesn't make any sense if there's a regulation coming out of it. I mean, I've seen that on. on I mean, there, there, there are. I mean, one of the last times Congress did a major. Privacy bill was in the healthcare context where they revised the HIPAA statute in the high-tech law in 2009. There's some things in there that make no sense at all, and they didn't even do that much. It was a handful of things. You know, they had, I'm going to make up the number, they had eight things that they were doing. Two or three of them really don't make any sense. I mean, a couple of them do. A couple of the, the easier ones make sense. So I think that's a real uh, a real question. I do think the preemption issue is going to be challenging. I mean, I'm actually working on a piece right now about, um, you know, the, the California attorney general signed, signed a letter with, a, I think, eight or nine other attorney generals the other day and used some of the California examples. And, and they used this bill in California that's not the CCPA. It's a Confidentiality of Medical Information Act, which is a healthcare privacy law in California that was written by the legislature after HIPAA. And the example that the attorney general used was that it applies beyond HIPAA. That makes sense. I mean, there's certainly things that, that you want to apply to. But the rest of the law makes no sense. I mean, how you figure out, it, it basically says, even to people subject to HIPAA, do HIPAA half the time, do something other than HIPAA, sometime do something that's more than HIPAA, do something that's, it, it's an impossible thing to figure out. I mean, it is, if, if I, 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 I threaten my law school classes on this issue, I say, if I don't, you know, if at the end of the semester, I don't feel like they've been trying I'm going to give them that California law as the final exam and say, tell me, tell me what this means. And they're all going to fail because it's not you can't figure out what it means. And it's a um, it's a bill where they could have they it was very easy to say, we HIPAA sets a floor. We want to go above that floor. Here's how. But they just didn't do that. It's all over the map. On what they're you're, doing. You're, so Kirk, I don't that.
0: Kirk, you're, you're definitely, you know, somebody that knows a ton about HIPAA. And I think we've seen less confusion. At least from my perspective around HIPAA, with the exception of people that shout on Twitter, HIPAA violation, HIPAA violation, that they don't know what the hell they're talking about. But, like, it doesn't seem like we've had the same level of confusion around HIPAA, for instance, as compared to the GDPR or the e-privacy You know directive and like that seems more in line with what you're saying which
1: is like a bunch of stuff that's hard to reconcile with facts. let me let me me take a let me take a time back to something something you said earlier kirk so you were giving the example of this weird california hipaa complementary law that is difficult to interpret and impossible from what it from what you're saying likely to enforce um in a meaningful way okay so that to me makes the case for preemption right like Get rid of all that shit, have a preemptive omnibus privacy law and like, let, you know, let the states de- take a step back on and let the feds do the regulating and enforcing. Why is there such disagreement yep. in Congress about preemption? Because there is. Um, and, and And to your point earlier about like the likelihood yeah. of passing in the spring of next year or whatever, I think preemption is a huge blocker because there's a debate and I'm interested in understanding why it's so debatable. Yep. And then the second thing I think is a huge blocker yeah. is private right of action. And I think these guys are entrenched across party lines yep. in a, in opposing views. And to me, those two things make it really difficult for any law, any meaningful law to pass. So interested in your take on like why yeah. preemption is so controversial and how we get over the private yeah. right of action uh, issue.
2: Yeah. Well, look, I mean, you, the, the, those those two points have been the sticking points for the last several right. years. No question about it. Um, at least on the House bill, they seem to be getting to a point of reasonable compromise on the private right of action. Mm-hmm. They're going to have one. They're going to have some limitations on it, and it's going to it's going to have a delayed starting point. So you're not going to have people suing the day the law the law goes into effect. I could, you know, I don't know that if I was writing a law from scratch, it that'd be how I would do it. But I mean, I I could see that getting getting through. Um, you, you you said state law on both law and enforcement. One of the things that I could see as a way to overcome both private right, of preaction, uh, private right of action and preemption is to actually have the states involved in enforcement. I'm not adverse to having the states Great. involved in enforcement. What what I am less comfortable with is all these state laws that, again, are just challenging. And and I and I mentioned that HIPAA example because, I mean, the, the California medical law that, that's, that's a, a complement to HIPAA, as you said. Because they had they had HIPAA and they looked at that and they said we want to do something else and even though they had a a, a road map, I think they still did a terrible job with it. it yeah, you know, the, the the better example would have been like Gramm-Leach-Bliley when the Gramm-Leach-Bliley law passed and Congress gave you know made it an opt out and it said that's a floor states can pass a higher law. It was very easy conceptually to say to a, a state could say. We don't like opt-out. We don't think that's protective enough. We want to have opt-in. If you wrote a law that said opt-in instead of opt-out, we can, we can debate whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but at least we understand it. <laughs> we know what the change was. You said the one law says X, we're going to go X plus Y. Hip, that's the HIPAA standard. You can go above HIPAA. HIPAA sets a floor. The two laws that have really tried to do that, there's one in California and there's one in Texas, I think are terribly written bills. And I'm not even sure what they're trying to accomplish. I mean, one of the things you can do with HIPAA is to say there's lots of people who aren't subject to it who should be subject to something. You know, that's that's a, 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 even a hotter issue now because of the Dobbs case and you have all these mobile apps and things like that. I'm fine. You want to have a law regulating them? Fine. I'm not sure the HIPAA law makes sense for them because they don't do what doctors do and they don't do what hospitals do. And they don't do what health insurance do. But I, I think the states have been... Um, it's, it's been sort of problematic on the drafting. The reason the states want to have it is they say, oh, we can do a better job. We can give more, we, we want our citizens to have more protections. I mean, it's not a terrible argument. I mean, we, we, we understand that. I just think it hasn't played out very well so far. And I think in this area, there's a value to everyone to having some kind of simplicity and some kind of consistency because it's not a state-specific issue. Exactly. You know, Again, it's a... Uh, it's a it's a national. We could even say it's a global issue, but we're not. We're you know in a perfect world, we'd have a single global standard. We're not. You know, we're not getting there anytime soon. Yeah. So,
1: so let, let me follow up one more thing um, on that. And thanks for that. That's a, like I, I I hear you on the um, private right of action issue, and I, I I really like the idea of like a mixed enforcement model where the states can play some role in the enforcement of a federal law. I think that is a great compromise. Uh, on the state laws specifically and the proliferation of state laws, I sat in a room during uh, oh. the last IAPP summit um, <laughs> uh, in March full of privacy thought leaders. And I raised as a core issue, like the constitutional vitality, constitutionality of some of these state laws, particularly CCPA, but I think it applies to many of them. And I raised things like, the dormant commerce clause and people in the room laughed at me. I don't understand why there are not more challenges to just the legality of these laws that are proliferating at the state level, because to me on their face, there are tremendous constitutional issues in all of them, all of them. I haven't seen one that I'm like, that one's going to pass, uh, you know, intermediate scrutiny or whatever it is. Like I, they, they all look to me like they're a little fickle on the constitutional side of things. Oh.
2: I mean, I am I'm, I'm not going to pretend to be a sophisticated constitutional lawyer. And I think that, you know, is it more likely that we'll see some kind of a challenge like that in the immediate short-term future, given things that have happened in the last few months? Yeah, probably is. So I could easily see some kind of a challenge there. I, I, I think it's going to be tough to... Get those through. I think there were organizations who were looking at that question, you know, over the past four, five, six, seven years, including you know conservative groups who are very happy to sue about all kinds of stuff, and they chose not to sue on that. And so,
1: you think it? You you think they're waiting for enforcement? You think they're waiting? I think I think it will be. It's uh, do 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 you think the wait is like I'm going to wait till there's an enforcement action, and then I'll challenge the constitutionality there. The wait to be provoked approach. Uh, I,
2: I, I, again, I, I don't know about that. I don't. I, again, I will. I will be. I mean, I, I, have, I have friends who are much better on the constitutional law mm-hmm. side who think those challengers are going to are not going to succeed. So, Pedro,
0: I think that that's going to depend on who the party is that's under the enforcement action, right? And do they have the desire, wherewithal, and resources? to figure out how to do a challenge like that. And do they think what's the likelihood of success? Right. Is, is that right?
2: Well, but, but, but I mean the, the the interest groups could certainly dive in and support whoever that is. And so I don't, I don't, you know, I'm, it's not clear to me. I mean, again, there, there are companies who would like, you know, is that there, there are clearly companies who have to deal with this in the international environment who would rather there be standards in the United States. I mean, I, I, I mean if 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 I'm, you know, if I'm a company and I'm going to fight, you know, the Connecticut law, I don't know why, you know, I don't know why you'd fight the Connecticut <laughs> law. But I mean, whatever, whatever. you're going to you're going to challenge one of those laws on that basis. What what that does is it it would make Congress pass a law <laughs> frankly at that point. I mean, what one, one of my one of my privacy what ifs um and I've I've been trying to figure out a way to do this in law school, I haven't gotten too far enough, but but it was was the, uh, the, the Wyndham case, you know, the Wyndham case that challenged the FTC's authority to bring data security cases. If instead of Wyndham bringing that case after the FTC had already done 50 or so cases, if um, BJ's Wholesale, which was the first company, had brought that challenge, I think BJ's would have won. The court basically said in Wyndham, close call, but there's already been 50 cases, so you lose. I mean, that's, that's paraphrasing, but it's not paraphrasing all that much. <laughs> I basically said, you should have known because there's already been a bunch of cases. That's an interesting result. And at the same time, if you play that out, I think we could have seen, if, if if the Wyndham case had come out the other way and the court had said the FTC doesn't have that authority, frankly, I would have bet that Congress would have passed the law at that point. Now, I don't know what that law would have been. It might've been a data security law. It wouldn't have been as strict a law as we're looking at now. But I mean, I think just the overall thinking of all, you know, across the board, or, you know, independent of the party stuff has changed a lot on these issues. There are lots of Republicans who are interested in the in privacy issues. Now, again, they're getting some of them are getting caught up in the platform monitoring and a variety of other things and sort of take them in different directions. But the privacy issue, I mean, as I said, it's a it's a it's an issue that everyone can, I mean, everyone can appreciate. It's one of the things that I've liked. In the teaching aspect, is I can say to every student, I mean, look, I say to students, look, you took criminal law as a first year law student. You didn't take criminal law because you expect to be a criminal defendant. I mean, maybe some of them did, but I mean, most, most of them aren't taking it for that reason. Every student should take privacy law because it affects them every single day. It's a good thing for their professional environment, but at the same time, it's all relevant to them. And I and I think that that I think Congress understands that.
0: You both teach students. So uh, from both of you I guess I'm I'm interested to know uh like are are you saying that I'm I'm assuming you are but how are you communicating those things to the students the ubiquity of privacy when you know it isn't ubiquitous in every law school and so it's sort of no, some absolutely. in a, some in you know do a great job some don't some do zero my law school does nothing i mean it's a, it's a joke um yeah. so how do you communicate to them the, the importance and the growth, you know, this is for both of you, you both talk to students, you know, a lot.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I have been surprised at how many schools don't yet have a significant, even a single privacy course. I mean, I, I, I teach, I teach at an American university. I, I, I'm the privacy professor at another major law school because I don't have a professor. I come in and do a little mini course there. Um, my alma mater, which is, you know, a Uh, A big, big, big brand name law school doesn't really have a general privacy law class. Um, A number of the top 10 law schools don't have a major privacy class. At the same time, I think students can understand, you know, again, I I, when I teach part of my goal is to make them understand what they can do with this in a career, even if they're not going to be a privacy lawyer. Most of the students are not going to be privacy lawyers. Now, I've been pleasantly surprised to see how many of my students are now in privacy careers. and that's and that's certainly growing. But I I do think we can get across to them why they should be interested in these issues, sort of regardless of what they're they're going to go into. And at the same time, it's just interesting stuff. I mean, I'm you know I, my my challenge is as, as a teacher. I teach a general privacy law class in the fall. My syllabus changes you know forty percent every year. <laughs> and you know I'm 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 working right now. I'm working on you know I'm doing a Dobbs class. I'm doing a COVID class. I'm doing you know yeah, you know, I I may have to blow up the whole syllabus if this if this law passes. I mean, what's what's the point of talking about all these other things if the whole focus of attention is going to be on a new new privacy law? So it's just a really interesting area. And again, I think I think it's a you know we have to make it a little. Later. I I did a presentation for a group of students at the beginning of the summer who are about to be law students. It's a it's a group of of, of students who are starting law school in the fall. Um. And I used a couple of examples. God, they loved it. I mean, they were so into it right away and they could understand it and they could think about it. They had no background on what the law is, but you could you you get a feel for these issues and, it's, and it matters to people and you can understand it. I mean, that was a great experience. I, mean, I, I loved presenting to that group because, again, they were so engaged without having, you know, they weren't nervous about, you know, what are they I wasn't their professor. I wasn't grading them on anything. They were just interested in talking about this stuff. That was really fun to do.
1: I sort of take a little bit of a different view. I, I, I often like analogize what we do to like tax law and contrast the two. But I think in in some ways, like you can make the same argument about tax law, like every it affects everybody and and everybody should have like really good awareness of it. Yet I'm pretty sure less than 10% of law students ever take a tax law class because tax law is hard and esoteric and difficult to understand and nobody's that interested in it. I think privacy definitely has a much more sort of like uh, like social conjecture out there. Like people are talking about it in ways that is a little sexier than like the tax code. But I think like applicability to individuals' lives is probably about the same. Meaning, taxes affect me greatly, and so do like the choices made right. about like.
2: Yeah, I don't. I I don't. I guess.
1: I I mean I, I think yeah, so. I, I, I guess I I, 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 guess a I, like, like, I, I fundamentally don't. Ag- that's okay. We can disagree. I I, I I mean I I started by saying <laughs> I disagree, but but like but I, I, I like I think like day to day the 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 tax laws of the U.S. affect my ability to make financial plans and decide my future for myself and figure out like whether I'm going to own a home and a car. And like the consequences are severe and extreme and, and heavy. Yeah. I think in privacy, it's the same thing, but I don't expect people to be experts in either, I guess, because they are sort of like specialties. I, they're not like core fundamental areas of the law, like criminal law or torts for you. Yeah.
2: But, 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 but I, but I guess at the same time, you're not, you know, you're you're not you're not doing anything on a day to day basis that, ha- that where where tax law is changing. Where you know it is a, it is a thing, and what you'd learn in, in in taking a tax law course in law school is how businesses operate. And most people are never you know it's never going to be relevant on that. You you know that you have to pay taxes, <laughs> and 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 you know that when you make more money, there's going to be a tax effect on that. But the pri- privacy the 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 choices and the decisions and the implications. I mean, I when I'm talking to law students, I I could talk about they're all they're all applying for jobs, they're all getting mortgages, they're I are mean, trying to get mortgages, they're all trying to get credit. Uh, they they're trying to get known in the field, they're trying to meet people, they may be trying to date, they may be trying to get pregnant, they're trying to buy, you know. It just it it affects so many things you do every single day. Um and again, I think I, I I I don't think you have to be. I mean, again, I, I'm obviously when I'm teaching students, I'm trying to get them to be at least some kind of an expert. But I just want them to be cognizant of how these issues affect them and be thinking about that. And I think that that idea of how um, how how lawyers understand these issues as people matters in giving legal advice because that's a lot of you know a lot of what I I am doing in my job. I'm a PR consultant half the time and I'm a customer relations people uh, person and I'm a business strategist on top of being a lawyer. I mean, if all you do is say, here's what the regulation says, I don't think you're doing a good job as a lawyer here. And so I think part of part of understanding these issues is to appreciate how it will affect people. How do you? you know, how, if people are going to complain, if people are going to reject it, or if people are going to have a concern, that's a much more problematic issue, even if I can defend it on the regulations.
0: That's a really good point. And how do you cultivate that? And so, like, one of the ways that I know that Pedro and I cultivate it is through our peers and through our friends in privacy and, you know, through the camaraderie of having been through stuff with people. You've been in the game a while. There's a lot of folks that have been in it a while. And so do you glean that kind of viewpoint from conversations like that and understand the sort of roundness and contours that privacy brings that I do you know from my peers a
2: lot yeah i mean i you know I, I try to be a sponge on that kind of stuff right so i mean i'm i'm bringing in a million sources what you know whatever it is i i i i will say i i found it very hard to teach and i'm struggling with that and i think you know i think You know, law law students in particular are, you know, they're used to reading cases and court decisions and having this impact, you know, just evaluation of a court decision. I think they struggle a lot with, you know, interpreting a statute and interpreting a regulation and trying to give advice based on that. And if you throw on top of that, some of these broader, you know, societal issues and perception, I think it's I've really struggled to teach that. And I don't I don't know that I'm doing a good job on that. I'll say a lot of the professors aren't trying to teach that necessarily. I am trying to teach that, Um, but it's hard. It sounds
0: like you're trying. And I know you do this, Pedro, because you let me sit in on your class like law schools don't do enough to teach people how to actually do the job. And so it's one thing to like talk about privacy and talk about you know, whatever the tax or whatever the class is, it's a whole nother thing, Kirk, to do the things that you're calling out, which is like, how do I talk to clients? How do I give them meaningful advice that isn't like really about the law? It's like about their business, their lives, things they should do, the way they should like position things within companies or externally. Like, how do you talk to students? This is for both of you because like, I know you're both doing this. What, what? What ways have you found to kind of like separate from traditional, like you took con law and and then that's it?
2: Yeah, I mean I, I, I've I, been using with one of my classes, I have an example that I that I when I teach the healthcare privacy class where um here here's the example. I mean, I I, I say that the you know it's your first day on the job at a hospital, your boss, the CEO of the hospital, walks into your office and says, Our patients love us. I want to start selling them used cars. And, you know, my question, you know, my question to students is, you know, what do you, what do you say to the CEO? What do you, know, and, and almost every year their first reaction is you're not allowed to do that because of the HIPAA marketing rule. I'm like, well, that can't be your answer to the CEO on the first day of your job is that you can't do it. So let's explore what you can do and let's explore how the, you know, the law sets some parameters, but let's work through what you can do to accomplish his or her goal as a CEO. Again, I, I say to, to, to my students, I say to my clients, I mean, my goal with the with the, with the clients, I think Andy, the, you, I've heard you say similar things on this, is my goal is to let the client do what they want to do. And I find a way for them to do what they want to do. And I'm generally pretty good at that and, and letting them figure it out. And if I say no to a client, they know I actually mean no, because I generally say yes. <laughs> and so- there's a value to that. I mean, I certainly watch peers at other places and in, in companies and, and all kinds of things who say no all the time. And all they do is, is identify problems. You're just not, you're not going to get asked anymore if all you do is, is, uh, is identify the problems. I mean, I, I have another example that I use that's it, it, actually the first example I use in most of my classes it has to do with a, um, you know, it was a news story about it, using an AI formula to identify suicidal posts and in social media and the students are great at identifying all the things that can go wrong and i remember the first time i used that example there was a you know a meek student in the back row after about an hour of this discussion who raised her hand and said well what if we stop somebody from committing suicide i'm like yes let's <laughs> let's look at the positive of this let's look at what we can you know. don't just figure out all the negatives figure out if there's something you, and and i do think that's a hard it's a really hard thing to to teach and yeah, I I can say to my students that a hundred percent of what I do as a lawyer, hundred percent has nothing to do with anything I learned in law school at this point. <laughs> I mean, the subject matter didn't exist at the time. All the stuff you were talking about about how to work with clients and how to talk to them and how to you know that I, I I I find that the major advice I'm giving my young associates at this point when they're they're working on is make it simpler. You know,
0: Pe- Pedro, that's yes, your, that's you your, this
2: through, you know, the answer, the client's not going to understand what you just said, make it simpler for them.
0: Pedro, that's your experience too, right?
1: Yeah. But I, again, I teach, I teach privacy law and privacy law related topics from the perspective of having students that are interested in actually practicing that. Right. Like when you teach con law, you're very rarely teaching to, I'm going to teach you how to be a con law practitioner. You're teaching someone how to interpret the constitution mm-hmm. At an intellectual level as a lawyer, not as a lay person, right? Like that's what you're teaching. And so you have to decide what type of course you're going to teach and what type of course privacy law should be. I made the point earlier that I think it's more like tax law or environmental law or some of these. I think privacy is a practice that requires like fundamental law principles to be Formed first so that you can understand it Right that's why you teach like I couldn't imagine Teaching privacy law before con law because I think Privacy law just branches out of the constitution In the U.S. for example right and So like how I approach The topic with students that are interested In practicing is very much how Kirk described Very practical oriented Very like how you're going to do this In the real world if I was teaching Principles of privacy law I Would teach it completely differently I would just focus On the you know theoretical foundational elements of privacy and where it arises from in the bundle of rights and all the things. How you teach depends on like who your students are and what the purpose of the course is. And I think you can teach it either way. What you what is very dangerous is to try to teach it both ways at once. That's how you confuse and lose people. Um, And so I think you have to just figure out who your students are going to be. If they're third year law students interested in being tech lawyers, then they need to understand how to practice privacy law. If they're just folks getting three credits and one in area of law to explore, then you have to teach the class differently to that audience. That's, that's sort of my take. And from experience, that's sort of what works the best.
2: I, 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 I apparently need to do more of a questionnaire for my students before they start to figure out which uh, <laughs> which category they're in. Because it's really, you know, I, I, one of the things I started doing during the pandemic was I started, I mean, my classes aren't huge classes, so I can do this, but I started having a one-on-one call with every student to try to understand why, you know, basically why they were taking the class and what their background was and, you know, um, and that has helped a little bit, um, with some of those points, but I mean, there, there are clearly, you know, but a quarter of my class is going to be people who seriously have an interest in the field. A quarter might have an interest in the field and half of them are, you know, another quarter are just interested in the field. And a quarter of them are because it fit their schedule, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) don't have any more interest than that. And so, um, I, I, I think it's, I, I. I would look at it the other way, Pedro. I would look at it as the professor has to decide what they want. Exactly.
1: To I agree with you. I agree and with you. I agree with you, you know, and, and, and you put in the way I communicate. What and and course it's interesting today,
2: for me because
1: i yeah, sorry. The way I communicate the intention of the course is very much through the course description and exactly what you just said, like sort of follow up with students. Like on yeah. day one, it's like, Hey, this is a practical class. Here's how we're going to do it. Or no, this is a wonky theoretical philosophy of law and privacy class. If you want to practice privacy law, this isn't going to get you ready for that. If you want to think about privacy at a deep level and write paper, this is the class. Or if you want to do tech transactions, I'm going to show you how to do them. And we're going to do some in the class, right? Like it just depends. But I agree with you. It's the professor yeah. has some like, a, like pro- propagandize that intent. And then the students can decide for themselves. If you want to stay, stay. If you want to go, go. It's cool. Yeah. I want to well, th- and I
2: think going back to the point, Andy, you made earlier about the law schools. I mean, most of the schools that have a privacy law class, I think teach a largely
1: philosophical
2: privacy law class. I mean, I mean, for, for example, Pedro, you, you, you said that you couldn't see teaching privacy law before constitutional law. I could absolutely see teaching it before, because my class doesn't have anything to do with constitutional law for the most yeah. part. I mean, and, and I could link it up in, in certain ways if I need to, but I, but it's interesting. I mean, I, 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 I guess lecture for a number of what I consider the real, pri- you know, real privacy law professors and privacy academics. Um, and I come in and I do a particular class. It's often a healthcare class or a legislative class or something like that. That's a little different. But but the overlap of my syllabus and the, the the real academics who teach this stuff, the overlap of my syllabus is very small. I mean, my I basically spend the whole semester teaching what they do in two or three class sessions. And that's because they spend a lot more time on the other kinds of things that are, um, and again, I don't know that it's better or for worse. I think it's just different. and if the goal, I mean, I, when I was brought into American, they specifically wanted me to teach a practical course. and that was sort of what I was hired to do. And that's just what I've tended. That's my approach. I mean, I don't, I don't know enough of the constitutional stuff. I don't, you know, there, there are certainly things that are taught in the other classes that I just, I don't know enough and I don't have time to learn it. I don't, but I can teach them again, people come out of my class knowing, you know, they can start in a job, you know, If Andy needed a deputy in his company, they could work they could work for him and know what they were doing from from the start in a way that that. I'm not sure that's going to be true in a lot of other a lot of other places.
0: I'm always going to skew towards practical, you know, and I think that's that's my bias. Um, So I appreciate that you're both at least doing, you know, a significant amount of that. And and I love the one on one conversations. Um, But before we before we wrap, I would be remiss, Kirk, if we didn't talk tennis a moment, just for a moment. I didn't know like, the tennis connection. I know I you're a it. big tennis guy. And yeah, like I am too. And I, I always wonder this about other folks that do anything, you know, that, that is, um, that feeds their soul. Right. Are you like, does privacy or work Do those thoughts creep in on the court? Cause they do for me. And sometimes I want to, sometimes I accept them in depending on what's going on in the match. And sometimes I'm like, you know, pushing it away.
2: Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know that I do my privacy thinking on the tennis court. I I do lots of <laughs> privacy thinking like in the shower or something. I mean that's I'm much more like I I I'll I'll, I'll I'll be in the shower and I'm like, "Oh, that's a thought. I got to remember that thought until I get out to write it down." I, I the ten, tennis for me is a um you know, it's, it's uh, the the soul element. I mean, I when the pandemic hit, I played tennis almost every day. Amazing. And it was the one thing I could do It was outside. I mean, you know, we happen to live in a place where you can play out. I've I played almost every day from like beginning of May that year or middle of April that year through Thanksgiving. I mean, I was playing and it was 35 degrees. <laughs> so, you know, time to, and, and that was great. And so for me, it's really a, uh, it's a separate part of my life. I don't, I mean, I've, I have friends in the area and I you know, I have a partner of mine that I play with all the time and it is, but uh, it's, it's just a joy to, to, to play and be out and to, to do that. So my, I have, you know, I, I, I take the subway into work. I do lots of just thinking on the subway, random thoughts. I do lots of the show, you know? um But yeah, it's, that, that, I can't say that that's where I'm, you know, uh, I, I, I try not to, to to think too aggressively about every shot. What, what's that? Book? You've probably read that book about the um one where you're not supposed to think about anything when you play tennis on blank. Yeah, because <laughs> I don't know how to, to do seven. that. It was, but it goes. It's a book that goes back to the '70s that I read. You know, like, a, like it's like the inner mind of tennis or something like that. And the whole idea was you shouldn't think about it. And I can feel myself. I, I don't want to think about it, but I don't think the way to do that is to be thinking about my privacy law problem <laughs> while, while I'm trying to hit a ground stroke.
1: So.
0: I can't help it. Like I'll be running yeah. for a ball, and I'll be like literally running to go do something, and I'll have a thought. And Pedro, you and I talked about this a lot. Like that happens for you on the motorcycle.
1: Yeah. Not for privacy though. I'm sort of in Kirk's. uh, I don't want him being distracted on his motorcycle. The motorcycle is where I go to live in the exact moment. And um, I do get ideas creep in, but like not work related. I use it as a respite. And it sounds like Kirk's probably along those same lines on tennis. And it's just where I go. It's a sanctuary. I I don't, it's where I go to clear my mind so that later on good ideas can like flourish, you know? So like it's where I plow the field. If that makes sense of my brain and, and all, it's just me and the plow, man.
0: There's a great book that I love called Ogilvy on advertising, and it's an advertising book by, you know, the famous advertising mogul. And he says, you need to stuff your head. This is he's the context is he's talking about how he comes up with creative ideas, but it's he stuffs his mind full of everything he can possibly do. And then he unhooks himself. And so when you say, Kirk, you have a thought in the shower, he says, you know, I stuff my mind and and then I unhook myself. I go for a walk. I have a drink. I look at a sunset. I do whatever it is. And then the ideas flow from there. And so you guys are saying the same thing, I think.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think
2: I, so. That's, that's the sponge element, right? Yeah. I mean, I take in a million things and eventually it's going to pull out, you know, stuff's going to come out and Randy. Yeah, no, absolutely,
1: I absolutely agree. Really cool that. that this is ending on tennis. I because- think we got to wrap up real quick, Andy, maybe you guys can give me a recommendation. We can give one to the audience like three different people in the last week or two have mentioned a book to me. Um, It's I I think it's called Open. It's by Andre Agassi. Does this ring a bell with you guys? I don't. I read it. I, don't, I haven't yeah, read yeah, it. absolutely.
2: His, his autobiography. It,
1: it, people are telling me it's worth every second of it. So I don't know. I was curious if you guys had read it because I'm going to read it. That's my next book. I, it just never happens that three random people, none of them play tennis, have all said, you need to go read this book.
0: Kirk, you go first. Well,
1: it's not a new book yeah, either. It's yeah. been It's probably six six years right? old at well, this I'm going to go read it. I'm excited about Kirk, it. Kirk, no, yeah, go first. It's good. It's good. Yeah. Uh,
2: it, it's, good. It, it's um. I f- I found it a little depressing. I mean, his you know his his his, his early life and the pressures he had, and that, I mean, I I found that kind of hard to read. Actually, is that right? Um,
0: Here was my takeaway. It's, yeah, it's it's very well done. Here was my takeaway, Pedro, and why you might be interested in the book. Like the biggest thing that came out of the book to me is that he hated tennis.
1: What I love which that. is
0: a. <laughs> a very odd thing to take away from, from a book by a guy that won eight grand slams. So um, he hated tennis and he bonded with his wife, Steffi Graf over both hating tennis. And that comes from being pushed in ways when they were young and, and uh having the mental battle and the physical battle. And so like when they, I think you're gonna enjoy that aspect of it. The dissonance of being so good at something and having so many kind of interjecting thoughts and feelings about it.
1: Fascinating. Well, I'm gonna give it a read. I just could I just yeah. thought it was curious that all these random people recommended it and then today yeah. you closed with tennis. So I'm gonna give it a read. Thanks for hanging out with us, Kirk, man. You got some good ideas on this stuff. I hope I hope your fortune telling plays out because I definitely welcome a federal privacy law and March is my birthday month and I would love to be celebrating uh an <laughs> omnibus privacy law with you guys in March. <laughs>
2: Alright, thank you for having me.
1: Appreciate it.